The idea of a secret rapture that rescues believers in the end times is a very popular one these days, but is this what the Bible teaches? We're going to find out in today's episode of The Dance of Life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander and I'm your host on this beautiful day. It's beautiful for me at least because I get to look outside my window, but hopefully it's beautiful for you as well. Today we're talking about the rapture. This is a uh, ep- second episode in a series on the end times events. So if you haven't seen the previous episode, go check that out, please. And see where we're coming with this because everything will be in a consecutive order and build on top of the previous one. So hopefully you can go check that out and enjoy. But today we're talking about the rapture. It's a very popular teaching, right? It's very uh, popular on YouTube. A lot of people talk about the rapture and rapture events or trying to time the rapture. And particularly the rapture is associated with one of the end times views, although it's not exclusively associated with this, but it's associated with dispensationalism. And again, if you saw the previous episode, we outlined the five main end times views, and we talked about how dispensationalism has several problems. All of the views have problems. And hopefully that episode will help you question the view that you held so that you can start asking the big questions. There's a lot of problems with each view that leads to error, I believe. So ultimately, we have to have a more nuanced, a more refined approach, and that comes down to studying the Bible. So our goal will be to look at the rapture from a biblical lens, but also to understand what it's connected to and maybe those things, if they're true or not. So for example, dispensationalism, and the pre-tribulation rapture, all those things are very connected to a literal seven-year tribulation, which depends on a third temple being rebuilt so that the Antichrist can step into it and declare himself to be God. All these things are what we would call futurist interpretations of the end times, meaning things are happening in the future. They're not historical in the sense that the prophecy in the Bible has been happening throughout history, and they're not preterist either, which is the view that things already happened in the past. So, Futurism is very connected to dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a futurist type of eschatology. And it's also connected to a pre-tribulation rapture. So if those things can be dissected and proven to be false, right? In future episodes, we're going to be looking at things like, is Satan bound now or in the past or in the future? Is Christ reigning as king right now? When is the millennial kingdom? You know, what about the tribulation? All these types of things. So are there different ways to view these things based on Scripture? What does Scripture really tell us? What does context, what does history tell us? All these things are very important. So we will be dismantling a lot of these things in future episodes. Today I decided to focus on the rapture because, again, it's very popular. But the rapture is connected to dispensationalism. And dispensationalism, as if you remember from the last episode, if you watched it or listened to it, has a lot of problems. And the problems with dispensationalism is first and foremost that it's very literal. It misses a lot of typology in the Bible. It misses a lot of figurative writing, symbolic writing. It misses greater spiritual truths because it's so focused on the physical world and on literal interpretations of the Bible. Now that's a big problem because there are a lot of figurative things in the Bible. And they're all very beautiful too. And if you see only the literal physical interpretation you're really missing out. One example that's very common uh, that most people know is when Jesus 
told his disciples to eat his body and drink his blood. Now, does that mean that he actually meant that literally? Of course not. And if you remember the verse, people were kind of shocked and some people even left because they didn't understand. They didn't understand that he was making a reference to him being the bread of life, the living water, ultimate, right? These are spiritual realities and eating throughout scripture is a metaphor for putting knowledge within you, putting knowledge in your mind. So these types of things are ignored by dispensationalism because they're so focused on literal, physical realities. And that's that's a big problem. That's something that should make anyone question their view, being very literal, because the Bible has plenty of figurative and typological spiritual realities. Um, another point with dispensationalism is that God's plan of salvation is divided into dispensations, okay? And we talked about this a little bit last episode. Not going to get too much into it this episode, but it's just the idea that God is acting differently throughout history. He acted differently with Adam and Eve than he did with Moses, than he did with pre-flood people, than he did with you know the New Testament. It's a different plan, and different people have different some different amounts of dispensations. But ultimately what it boils down to is... There's different ways that God is saving people throughout history, whereas the Bible is very clear that faith has always been the way to reconcile our relationship with God. It's always been through faith. Sure, we live in the New Testament and we have the full revelation of Scripture, but people in the Old Testament, Daniel, Noah, Abraham, Job, Moses, David, it was always about faith. They didn't have the full revelation that we have in the New Testament as the church, but if you read Hebrews 11, it's a hall of fame, hall of faith, really. It talks about all the biblical examples from Abel all the way through Jesus. And it talks about faith being the universal way that God is measuring and reconciling people. There's no dispensations. There's always been just faith. So that's really important to remember that dispensationalism teaches kind of like a conditional God, a whimsical God with different plans of salvation for different types of people in different types of time periods, which is just not biblical at all. There's nowhere in the Bible that that is taught. It's always been about faith. Another big problem with dispensationalism is that they divide what Jesus came to bring together. And we looked at a couple verses, just again, off the top, very general cursory review, but you know, the apostles and Christ both taught that everybody is one through the body of Christ, which is the church. This is the church of believers. I'm not talking about the church as an institution. I'm talking about the church of believers, the group of people, the kingdom of God, the people who believe in Jesus Christ and and partake in that faith. Those people are one. doesn't matter if you're Jew, you're Gentile, you're Asian, you're black, you're white. Everybody is one in Christ. And that was the whole point. But dispensationalism teaches that there's a different plan of salvation for the Jews. It teaches that, you know, the believers will get raptured away and then the Jews will go through tribulation and that way they'll repent and there'll be revival and there's going to be just a separate plan that God has for that people because they're still the chosen people. So again, it's one of those things where if we can look and see what the Bible has to say about these things, then we can make up our minds even more. But all of these things rely, or are connected to, I should say, to a pre-tribulation rapture. And so, if we dismantle these, right, and we will in the future episodes that we do, we're going to look at all these things separately because they're very involved topics, then 
that will help us to make up make up our minds about anybody who is teaching a pre-tribulation rapture, maybe said had a vision or a dream about a pre-tribulation rapture. Remember, we have to test the spirits. And we're living in the end times, meaning the deception is going to be at its maximum. Christ warned us about it. The apostles warned us about it. Deception will be at its maximum. So we have to use discernment. And again, this is not this episode is not about bashing anybody who believes in a pre-trib rapture. It's not about putting down anybody who believes in a pre-trib rapture. It is about encouraging you to persevere, to have strength, to have discernment, and to ask questions, to question the view that you hold. Because again, and we talked about this last episode, there all the views have a problem. And so to really construct a quote-unquote biblical view, and I, I use the quotes because everybody says that their view is biblical, but really to align with the Bible, we have to study quite a bit because each view has certain things maybe that they profess that are true, but then they're also riddled with problems. And so you can't commit to a view and say, oh, I'm a dispensationalist, or oh, I'm an amillennialist, or I'm a pre-trib, whatever. You have to think outside the boxes of categories and study and get familiar with all these issues, like is Christ king right now or in the future? That's going to help you decide whether you believe in a millennial kingdom as in a future millennial kingdom, which will impact whether you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture or not. Gosh, all these words are so long, I'll tell you. But one more point with dispensationalism, again, that should call into question your belief. If you believe in a pre-trib rapture, which is connected to dispensationalism, not that you have to be a dispensationalist to believe that, but more often than not is connected to dispensationalism. Another thing we looked at in the last episode is the influence of the Jesuits on dispensationalism. Now, we're not going to jump into this can of worms in this episode. We will many, many times throughout the next episodes in this series in various places, but you have to remember that the people who were in the Reformation, the Reformers, universally, this is just a couple centuries ago, they universally believed the papacy and the Catholic institution, again, not Catholic believers, but institution, was the Antichrist power on the earth. That was universal throughout the Reformers. This was a few centuries ago, and that was a big problem. Obviously, that was a big problem for the world power, which was the Catholic Church, and it still is if you know anything about the Vatican. But the point is, is that the Jesuits were formed as a response to begin the counter-reformation. And what do the Jesuits do? Well, we looked at some resources last time, and they created a futurist interpretation of the end times. They brought this futurism back into the spotlight. What is futurism? Futurism is, don't look at the Antichrist right now. It's not on the planet. It's this future guy it's all literal. It's it's attention on the physical world. And there's going to be a third temple. There's a physical temple. The Antichrist will be a physical person that steps into a physical temple. The tribulation will be a physical seven years, literal. So all these things that dispensationalists believe in, believe it or not, were actually influenced by the Jesuits, heavily influenced, for and for good reason. Why? To take off attention off the Catholic Church, because the Reformation was a very dangerous thing for the institutional power of the Catholic Church. People were starting to read their Bibles again. People were starting to be freed from religion and from the institutional control. And that was a big problem. That was a very big problem. And it had to be squashed. And lo and behold, it was. Because a few centuries later, not just a few centuries, and now people have gone from believing that 
that the papacy and the institution looking for institutions and world powers as the Antichrist, as, as beast systems, to looking at things like microchips for Mark of the Beast, looking at things like a, you know, third temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, looking at things as a physical Antichrist, looking at all these little things and, and thinking that they won't have to deal with any of it because Jesus is going to come and rescue them from persecution. And so this has been a very drastic change. Look, again, if you believe in the pre-trib rapture, you have to ask yourself, why is the, why has this change happened? You have to look at history. You have to look at what fulfilled in history. Those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. And if we ignore history and we just take what we're given without questioning it, we will be deceived. And again, we're living in the end times. The deception is going to be at its maximum. And that's my goal with this episode mostly is to help you not be deceived. I don't want you to be deceived. I want you to be strong, to be encouraged, to lean on Jesus, to lean on the word, and to understand why you believe what you believe. That's really what it's about. So what is the rapture? The rapture is a teaching that believers in Jesus will be secretly rescued from the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year literal period, and believers will be rescued by Jesus and presumably taken to heaven for the time of the tribulation while the unrepentant are basically tried and, you know, given a chance to repent, as well as the Jews having their own plan of redemption with God. Dispensationalism sees the rapture happening before the end times events, Premillennialism and postmillennialism sees it as happening either mid-tribulation or right right at the end when Jesus comes. Some people don't even see that there's a rapture. There's just postmillennialism believes that things are getting better, and so Jesus will return. And so, you know, some postmillennials don't believe in an apostasy at the end because it's going to get really good. And we're in the millennial kingdom now. And of course, if you're a millennial and you believe that the millennium is right now spiritually. Some people believe there is no rapture. Some people believe there will be an apostasy, so the rapture will be right at the end when Jesus comes. So there's a lot of varying beliefs about the rapture, as you can tell. And again, trying to outline all of these would be pointless because there's just so many of them. The real important thing is understanding what does the Bible say about the timing of Jesus' return? What does the Bible say about the appearance of Jesus? Is it going to be secret? Is it going to be very obvious? Who's rapturing? Is it the angels? Is it Jesus? These types of things. And we're going to explore all that as well as the history of the rapture uh, in this episode. But if we can prove that there isn't a pre-tribulation rapture, that's going to be very important because that's going to help eliminate a lot of false teaching that's happening today. You know, look, I see a lot of well-meaning Christians that are posting on YouTube that, oh, you know, I think the rapture is going to be this year, or I'm getting a dream from Jesus that rapture is going to be in six months. People have been trying to predict the rapture for as long as the pre-tribulation rapture has been a major teaching. So that should tell you something. The Bible has a lot to say about people who make predictions and they don't come true. Now, I'm not calling some of these people, false prophets or false teachers, but ultimately we should be careful when we try to predict things. We should be very careful. That for sure, we cannot predict. So that's the Bible is very clear about that. And ultimately, another thing to ask yourself is, 
every generation of Christian, we'll get more into this in a little bit, but every generation of Christian has had to prepare for tribulation, for suffering. Are we going to be treated any differently? So this is a huge topic today and something that we should be familiar with because we don't need to be deceived. And why is it important? Well, Jesus warned us not to be deceived. Matthew 24, which is a famous end times chapter, it begins with, see to it that nobody deceives you. Okay, and, and reminds us that the deception is going to be so great that it could even fool the elect if they weren't elect. That's how powerful it's going to be. And that's those are some scary and strong words. Remember the didact from the second century that we looked at in the, in the last episode. It's not an inspired text, but it, it's a historical text. It shows what Christians believed at the time. It aligns with scripture pretty well. And they believed that there was going to be an apostasy at the end, that people's love will grow cold, that there's going to be persecution, and that Satan will impersonate Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, whether that's going to be the case or not, it's possible. I think it's definitely possible. And certainly with this physical interpretation that the Jesuits have forced into the world, that they are now fulfilling through the Third Temple, through all these things that are happening, people are thinking that the futurist version of the end times interpretations, the people think that that's actually true and it's coming to pass. Imagine if they set up the world for the most, the ultimate deception that Satan masquerades as Jesus Christ and people don't know their Bibles. Maybe they even use holograms to simulate a rapture I mean, there's a lot of crazy things that could happen. We really don't know. From the things that I've seen, I would not be surprised. And people will be very deceived. Now, if you ask yourself this, if you wanted to impersonate Jesus Christ, you were the enemy, right? And, you know, you want to fool people. Do you want them to be vigilant? Do you want them to know the truth, the word of God? Absolutely not. Why? Because you can fool them. The people who aren't elect... They will be fooled, and they'll take the mark of the beast. They'll worship you. Whatever that's going to look like, who knows? But they'll worship you, and they'll be doomed. The people who are elect, who are who are going to be preserved, now whether you believe in that or not, that's a different topic, but I believe in election. The people who are elect, they will be preserved. But at the very least, you can discourage them. Imagine all the people who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, and let's say they fake something with holograms or they fake somehow something happens and they fake it and then you're left on the earth and you're discouraged or somehow you know somehow they do something i don't know i really don't but you would be discouraged or it doesn't happen it doesn't come to pass and there's tribulation and there's persecution your world is going to come crashing down because you were deceived and that's that's not good so Ultimately, this is very important for a variety of reasons. I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. I don't think anybody really does. I have my theories, like everybody else, and hopefully I'll be able to share those with you as we go on in this series. But look, what the important thing is, is that we as Christians have to prepare for the worst. Every generation of Christians has always had to prepare for the worst, not prepare for the best. Of course, we know in the end, we have hope. We have a hope that is beyond understanding, a hope that will not put us to shame. And that's the hope of a resurrection, hope of the return of Christ. Absolutely. 
Maranatha. But until then, you know, the apostles always taught about resurrection, not escape. And so this is very important. So that's what the Bible teaches as well. So let's jump into it. What is a pre-tribulation rapture? Well, the pre-tribulation rapture is that Jesus will come like a thief in the night, secretly, to without warning, and take the church and free it from a literal seven-year period of tribulation on the earth. So if we jump into some verses that support this, if we jump with um, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. These are some verses that people use to support a pre-tribulation rapture. It says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So that's a pretty popular verse, and I agree. We will be caught up in the air to meet Jesus. And this is something to remember. This is, I'm going to pause right here because this is something to remember. No matter what happens, remember that Jesus warned against false Christ, warned against listening to basically the media telling you, look, there he is. He's in the inner rooms or he's in the wilderness. No matter what happens, they will never be able to fake meeting Jesus in the air. This is what the Bible tells us. This is what we're to expect because nobody can fake that. I don't care what kind of technology you have. You cannot fake that. And that's the point. That is why it's going to happen that way so that we remember and are not deceived. But moving on, is that talking about a rapture, like a secret rapture? Or is it talking about something else? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So that's a pretty popular verse about seemingly the secret rapture that's going to happen. And again, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So I put this verse in conjunction with the other two because it's talking about not being destined for wrath, meaning we're not we're not destined for wrath. Okay, so what does that mean? That's a really important springboard into the next topic, which is the history of tribulation. And after that, which we'll talk about tribulation versus wrath. What does it mean to not be destined for wrath? Does that mean we're going to be you know, freed from tribulation, or does it mean something else? And my point in this series is that there it means something else. It means that we're not destined for God's wrath, which is judgment. If you believe in Jesus, you're not destined for wrath. Absolutely. But does that mean that you'll experience tribulation? Yes, you will. Tri- tribulation and wrath are two very different things. And so that right there should make you think, does the rapture save you from God's wrath? Or does it save you from tribulation before God's wrath is poured out? So that's something to think about. But I want to jump to a document called A Brief History of the Rapture. This is a pretty good paper from Liberty University Archives um, by a man named Thomas Ice. It's in May 2009. But this is this this guy supports the pre-tribulation view. And he wrote a paper about the history of the pre-tribulation rapture. And this is one thing I want to share with you because I didn't know about this either. I thought the pre-tribulation rapture was largely created by uh, John Darby, but ultimately it seems that this is a very old view. Now, it was resurrected, so to speak, by the Jesuits because it suited their futurist interpretation in the 1500s, and it was officially really kind of put forward by Darby, who, again, there's a lot of stuff about his connection to the Jesuits too, but we won't get into that. Either way, 
it's interesting to see that the history of this pre-tribulation rapture is actually very old. So let's take a look at this paper. Brief history of the rapture. I'm going to read a couple things here. One of the most often incited objections to pre-tribulationism is that it is a new teaching in the church, having only come on the scene in the 1830s. It's often argued that if the pre-tribulation rapture were biblical, then it would have been taught earlier and throughout church history. In the last decade, individuals have found a number of pre-1830 references to a pre-tribulation rapture. Here's a summary of the evidence. And this is the early church now. Since imminency, which is the idea that Christ could come in any moment, is considered to be a crucial feature of pre-tribulationism by scholars such as John Walward, it's, a, it's significant that the apostolic fathers, though post-tribulational, at the same time just as clearly taught the pre-tribulational feature of imminence. So they believed in a post-tribulation rapture or being caught up, but they also believed in this idea of imminence, that Christ could come at any point in time. Since it was common in the early church to hold contradictory positions without even an awareness of inconsistency, it would not be surprising to learn that their era supports both views. Larry Crutchfield notes, This belief in the imminent return of Christ within the context of ongoing persecution has prompted us to broadly label the views of the earliest fathers imminent intra-tribulationism. So they had kind of a mix of views very early in the church. Expressions of imminency abound in the apostolic fathers. Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, the Didac, we talked about the Didac, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the Shepherd of Hermas all speak of imminency. Furthermore, the Shepherd of Hermas speaks of the pre-tribulational concept of escaping the tribulation. Evidence of the pre-tribulation surfaces during the early medieval period in a sermon summit at tribute to Ephraim the Syrian, but more likely the product of one scholar's calls pseudo-Ephraim, entitled The Sermon on the Last Times, the Antichrist, and the End of the World. The sermon was written sometime between the 4th and the 6th century. The rapture statement is as follows, and he, he goes on to basically quote this sermon about a rapture statement, and this was from the early church. These are early church documents. And I'll link this in the resources and the description of this episode as always, but it's an interesting read. The medieval church. By the 5th century AD, the amillennialism of Origen and Augustine had won the day in the established church, both East and West. It's probable that some form of premillennialism persisted throughout the Middle Ages, but it existed primarily underground. It's believed that sects like Albinges's, Lombards, and the Waldenses were attracted to premillennialism, but little is known of the details of their beliefs since the Catholics destroyed their works when they were found. But there, and by the way, the Waldenses were also Sabbath keepers, and they were very persecuted. But there was a lot. But there was at least one who held to some form of pre-tribulationism, namely one named Brother Dulcino in 1304. Francis Gummerlock is the individual who advocates the Brother Dulcino rapture and find and said in his book, the Dulcinites held to a pre-tribulational rapture theory similar to that in modern dispensationalism. That's really interesting. Then you have the Reformation Church. After over a thousand years of suppression, premillennialism began to be revived as a result of at least four factors. By the late 1500s and the early 1600s, premillennialism began to return as a factor within mainstream Protestantism. With the excuse me, with the flower of biblical interpretation, flowering of biblical interpretation during the late Reformation period, premillennial interpreters began to abound throughout Protestantism, and so did the development of sub-issues like the rapture. 
Frank Murata, a brethren researcher, believes that the that Thomas Collier in 1674 makes reference to a pre-tribulational rapture, but rejects the view, thus showing his awareness that such a view was being taught in the late 17th century. There's the interesting case of John Askill, who wrote a book in 1700 about the possibility of translation, or rapture, without seeing death. Perhaps the clearest reference to a pre-trib rapture, if not the most developed system before Darby comes from Baptist Morgan Edwards, founder of Ivy League School, Brown University, who saw a distinct rapture three and a half years before the start of the millennium. The discovery of Edwards, who wrote about the pre-trib beliefs in 1744 and later published them in 1788, is hard to dismiss. And so there's a lot more in this paper that you can read. It's, it's actually very interesting. It's very well written. I think it's a good, good resource. But what is the conclusion? Well, the, the conclusion is, and this again, this is from a person who supports the pre-trib view. I found it very interesting. I found it very interesting that the idea of imminence is very old. This idea that Christ could come at any moment, could come tomorrow, could come in five minutes, right? That's, a, that's an old idea. It's nothing, nothing new in that sense. Uh, the pre-trib rapture was very popular in the early church, right? And then obviously it disappeared for many centuries until the Reformation where it started to be picked up again. And specifically, the people who started to use this pre-trib rapture and to form a very solidified eschatology were the Jesuits. Now, the people that I mentioned in this paper, they weren't Jesuits, but the Jesuits took what others were saying. Say, oh, there's this view. We can just move everything to the future. And there's a rapture, and we can add that to that, too. So those, those views were around. But then, as we saw in the last episode, the Jesuit had started to, to from about 1500s with Francisco Ribera had started to shape their eschatology using things like a pre-trib rapture, using things like a physical temple as a seven-year literal tribulation, shaping the eschatology so that the attention could go off the Catholic Church as an institution because that was a big problem. It was a giant propaganda move. And again, I'm not going to spend too much time on that. It's something that we will look into in future episodes but for the time being, it's, it's not really that important. The ideas are very old. They were formalized by Darby, who created dispensationalism, but the ideas themselves are very old. So we shouldn't look down on brothers and sisters in the faith who believe in a pre-trib rapture. We shouldn't look on them for being naive or misguided. They are being deceived. But, you know, look, everybody wants to escape suffering. The idea of a pre-trib rapture is very old, and it's old for for good reason. A lot of people believe in it because, yeah, why wouldn't you want to escape suffering? Why wouldn't you want Jesus to come and and save you from this mess of a world? Absolutely. I understand the feeling behind it. I understand why it it is such a popular view, at least historically. That's something I didn't know. But the question remains, is it biblical? Is it what the Bible teaches? And this is something we need to explore. The pre-trib rapture is not separable from a literal interpretation, a futurist interpretation of the end times. You need a seven-year tribulation. You need an antichrist that's a personal person that's walking around and getting into a physical third temple. If these elements are proven wrong, then the pre-trib rapture kind of falls apart. And that's something we'll look at in future episodes. But if the scripture tells us that there is no rapture in the sense that there's no secret rapture, but that everything happens when Christ returns, it's all one event, then 
the pre-trib rapture also falls apart. So we're going to be looking at things in future episodes that will help solidify this point. And in this episode, we're going to look at what does the scriptures say about the return of Christ, the timing of the events. So let's go back to a question that we rose a couple minutes ago, which is this idea of wrath and tribulation. We talked about how we're not destined for wrath as believers. But what does that mean? Does that mean that we escape tribulation? And the, the answer is no. The early church was expecting to be raptured prior to the day of the Lord. Meaning they thought that the day of the Lord was imminent, like judgment was imminent. Not prior to tribulation. Okay, they thought that judgment was coming, that Jesus could return at any point in time, and that there was that imminency, right? So remember, the early church fathers were post-tribulational in the sense that they saw that they're going to be persecuted, but they also believed that Jesus could return at any point in time. So they, and for good reason. I mean, I, I don't blame them. I probably would have believed the same thing too. But the tribulation happens before God's wrath is poured out. That's what the Bible teaches us. Things like disasters, the Antichrist, persecution. All these things happen before God's wrath is poured out. And again, we, we're reminded that we're not condemned to wrath, but if the Antichrist of natural disasters, if all these things are happening in our tribulation before wrath, what does that mean? That means that we're not condemned to be judged, but we're going to be around for tribulation. So if we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it talks about the coming signs. And let's take a look at what it says. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, that's talking about being gathered in the air, just like we mentioned earlier, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word, or letters seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is very important. So he's warning, if anybody tells you, oh, it's the day of the Lord is coming, or the rapture is <laughs> coming, let no one deceive you in any way. For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, great apostasy, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This is a title only used for Judas in the Bible, by the way, an interesting point to bookmark in your mind, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So the day of the Lord is not going to come until all these things manifest. Okay, now if we jump back to the first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verses 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay, so put it together. So the tribulation that's happening right now is not the wrath. The tribulation and wrath are two different things. We are saved from God's wrath. We're not condemned. But tribulation is not wrath. We're not saved from tribulation. This is a very important distinction to make for anybody who believes in a pre-tribulation rapture. We are definitely saved from wrath, but we're not saved from persecution, from tribulation. Look, every church that has been since the beginning of time, right, since the beginning of Jesus' ascension, every church has had to deal with tribulation. No church has been saved from tribulation. Christ himself was not saved from tribulation. He told us to take up our cross. No Christians in history have been saved from tribulation. I mean, everybody has, you know, their 
their cross to bear, right? So the question is, why should this final generation get such special treatment? Especially considering we're the lukewarm church in Revelation. We'll get back to that. But let's take a look at a couple verses about tribulation and suffering. In, in what does the scriptures say about enduring suffering? So if we start with John 16, 30, 16 verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. doesn't matter what time period. It's not a seven-year period. It's you will have tribulation in the world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Such a beautiful verse. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his apostles, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Pretty straightforward. James 1, verse 2. Testing of your faith. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That was what the apostles taught. James 1, verses 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's always been about the resurrection. It's always been about enduring until the end, perseverance of the saints. The resurrection is the reward, not escaping persecution. It is conquering death, just like Jesus conquered death. Through Jesus, we conquer death through the resurrection. And of course, the last generation, those who are alive will be caught up in the air, but either way, it's about persevering. But let's move on. We have a few here to look at. Matthew 10, verses 22. And you will be hated for all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, does this say the one who endures until... I come to rescue you or till the escape? No, endure, endures till the end. We'll be saved. That means if you're steadfast in your faith, you'll be given the crown of life. Matthew 13, verses 20 to 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. This is the parable of the sower. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The scriptures tell us that there is going to be a great falling away. The church fathers believe that. The didact says that. The New Testament says that. There's going to be rebellion, a great falling away. Why is there being a great falling away? People will lose faith. People who are being deceived into this pre-tribulation rapture are going to be very discouraged when persecution comes and they will have to make a choice between their faith or the world. And and with the way that we're in the lukewarm church today, with people coming to the faith based on their feelings, based on other things. Now again, I'm not judging the individual status of anybody here. I'm just saying that the way that we are increasing in numbers is attracting a lot of false converts because theology is not front and center. The word is not front and center. Doctrine is not front and center. And of course, you can get really nitpicky about doctrine. I'm talking about the core basics, right? What does it truly mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again? What does repentance really mean? Okay, these types of things are much more important than having a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and having a great experience at a worship concert. You know, that doesn't mean you're saved. doesn't mean you are a Christian, right? It's your relationship and 
your repentance from the previous lifestyle of sin. And we all struggle with that, obviously. But once you make that move towards Christ, you don't go back again. And yet there will be a lot of people that will go back because their faith isn't genuine. It's not based on the right things, as the parable warns. This is a prophetic parable, uh, on top of it being a parable just for our daily lives. But parable of the sower is just so good. Let's keep going. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated for all nations for my na- by all nations for my name's sake. Matthew 24, verses 21 through 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is a very telling statement. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. So what is he saying there? He's saying that people are going to be saved at the end of the event. They were cut. The days of that event were cut short so that some people could be saved. Some people could remain alive. Otherwise, nobody would remain alive. So they were cut short. Not, they're going to be cut short by a secret rapture. means you have to endure, but the days will have been cut short so that some people will be left alive. Let's keep going. Mark, uh, chapter 13, verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. These are parallel verses. Luke 21, 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. 21 verses 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. John 15 verses 18. The hatred of the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. This is another proof text for election, by the way. But, you know, remember that we're not greater than our master. If our master suffered, then we too will suffer as well. This is a very important point. And Jesus echoes this throughout his statements. John 17, verses 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And it's true. If you are trying to live in a life in alignment with the Bible, you will run into constant conflict with other people and with the world. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Such a beautiful verse. I love Romans. But What is Paul teaching here? He's teaching to rejoice in your sufferings and endure because you have hope, unlike people who don't have hope, whose hope is in the world. So he's not teaching that, hey, just wait. Jesus will come and rescue you secretly at any point in time. No, he's saying endure because you have hope. What is the hope? The hope is the resurrection, that we will be victorious in Christ. No matter what happens, we are guaranteed. The Spirit is our guarantee that we will be resurrected, just like our master was resurrected. Got a couple more here. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
So what does he say? We endure. When persecuted, we endure, not we escape. Very important. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8. Treasure in the, in the jars of clay. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Such an important verse. You know, it's it's this constant journey as a Christian that we are against the world all the time. And we have to carry, we have to die every day. We have to carry that death with us every day, spiritual death, so that we can live through Christ. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. That's what they were saying. Revelation 1, verses 9, vision of the Son of Man. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. What does that tell you really quick? That the tribulation and the kingdom have already been inaugurated was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. A couple chapters later, Revelation 2, verse 10, do not fear that you are about to suffer. This is one of the seven churches, I believe, the church of Smyrna. Yeah, these are... So churches of Smyrna, we'll get into this a little bit down the road, but the seven churches are also prophetic of the different phases of the church throughout time. Smyrna was the second church they were the, the persecuted martyred church. But, you know, these, this is teaching from Christ right here, which tells us a little bit about the pre-tribulation rapture. Do not fear that you are about to suffer. Behold, the, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. This is actually ten years, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So ten days is ten prophetic, is prophetically ten years, and we will verify that with history under Diocletian. But the point is, what is Jesus saying here? He's not saying, just hang on. I'm going to come and just, you know, rescue you from tribulation. No, he's telling them to endure. He's saying, you're going to have tribulation for 10 years. You're going to be persecuted like crazy for 10 years. So endure. And then you'll get the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. The spirit says to the church is the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. When's the second death? On judgment day when people are resurrected to either righteousness or death. Revelation 7, verse 14. I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, some people will say this is the seven-year tribulation, but we'll talk more about that in the future. The point is, the word the, okay, is actually added the the phrase in the original language says, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of great tribulation. The word the is added. It's not, that's not what the original language reads. So why is that important? Well, this was added by translators who had a particular eschatological view of a futurist great tribulation, seven-year tribulation. So they added the to solidify their view there, but that's not what the original language says. It says great tribulation. What does that mean? What is this passage saying? Well, it's talking about people who are being persecuted. They're going to be resurrected and they're going to be righteous. They'll be conquerors through Christ. It's teaching about perseverance of the saints. 
Great tribulation is throughout time for Christians because we're we're at war with the world. Friendship with the world is en- is enmity with God. And that's been the case throughout all the church age. Now, today we're in the lukewarm church. We're in the final church of Revelation. The one that's neither hot nor cold, and that's something to keep in mind. Now, compare this last verse in Revelation with Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. And it says, Immediately after the, the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven, from the other. Okay, so who's gathering the elect? Is it Christ or is it the angels? The angels, and we'll get more into this uh, more in the future here, but People are, I want you to take notice of two things. Angels are joining the gathering and people are gathered, are gathered at the end. At the end, okay? Revelation 6, verses 12 through 14. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like a blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and the very mountain island was removed from its place. So all these things are happening at the end. There's a parallel verse to Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Same astrological or astronomical signs. So all these things are happening at the end. And there's other verses that corroborate this imagery of a sky being rolled up like a scroll and things happening with the stars and and the luminaries and so on. So what is the conclusion with all these verses? Well, the conclusion is first and foremost that suffering and tribulation and persecution is part of a Christian life. You can't get around it. And the pre-tribulation rapture does not prepare you adequately for that. Would Jesus show partiality to the final generation compared to every other generation? Again, remember the seven churches of Revelation. The church of Smyrna was one of, I believe, I'll have to review this, but it was one of the ones that didn't have any reproofs. So all the all the churches of Revelation in the first couple chapters have different have have a format of different things. So for example, they have a commendation, they have a reproof, they have advice, counseling, a promise. All these things are part of the dialogue that Jesus has, or you know what he says. So this church of Smyrna didn't have a reproof. Okay, so it was very highly esteemed by Jesus. Why? Because they were being persecuted like crazy. They were just told to endure and that they will conquer. Now consider this. If that church was highly esteemed and the church that's the lukewarm church, which we are in right now, Jesus warned that if we don't (laughs) figure it out, he'll spit us out of his mouth. That's a pretty harsh rebuke. If that's the case, do you think that he would rescue the lukewarm church? when he told Shmirna, which was the persecuted Christians who were held in high regard for their faith, he told them to endure? I don't think so, right? That's that's very, very important. But the Bible teaches election too. It teaches election. It teaches that there's an elect. It's very clear. Some of these verses we went over, you know, were very open about that. Jesus chose us, right, to 
to be the elect and the elect will, the, the deception will be so great that even the elect could be fooled. They won't be, but that's how great the deception is going to be. So the elect is a teaching throughout Scripture. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach election. Obviously, the Old Testament doesn't use the word elect, but it's very clear. And that's a whole different study. If you want to check it out, check out my study on that. And there's there's a lot of stuff on that. But the point is that the Bible teaches election. So why is that important with the preacher of option? Well, again, it's dividing believers into different classes of believers. There's always been believers and non-believers, people who God reveals himself to and people who God passes over because the wicked have their purpose too. There were people that were predestined to reject Christ so that he could be crucified and atone for sin. You couldn't have that unless the cross was predestined, which is what Acts 4 teaches. The cross was predestined. If the cross was predestined, then the people who were evil and crucified him were also predestined. And people who were going to accept him and believe in him were also predestined. There was only two groups of believers, or two people, I should say, not believers. It's dispensationalism that splits believers into two groups. But throughout scripture, there's always two groups of people, wheat and the tares, the bad fish, the good fish. <laughs> you know, the the five responsible virgins, the five foolish virgins. It's always two people, people who don't believe and people who believe. But dispensationalism and futurism and pre-trib rapture teaches you that there's a separate plan for Jews and Gentiles, that there's separate believers, people who are elected are going to get raptured away when Jesus comes. But then if you're still elect, because you're predestined to believe, then, you know, joke's on you because you have to endure the rapture or do you have to endure the tribulation? So you have some elect that are predestined to be whisked away to safety, and then some elect which are going to be here and suffer, that doesn't make any sense. That's never been the case in any point in history in the Bible. God has never made a distinction between believers. He's made a distinction between believers and unbelievers. So this is very important. That's not what the Bible teaches. But the pre-trib rapture theory doesn't prepare you to endure persecution. It doesn't align with any of those scriptures that we reviewed. It is a false teaching. And again, it doesn't make you any less of a person that you believe in. It doesn't make you wrong. There's, you know, it's very attractive to want to get out of here. I feel that way too. You know, especially you learn the truth. You learn the truth about the world and who's in charge and, you know, all the ugliness that happens. Yeah, Jesus, please just rescue me. But we have to endure. He's rescued us already by giving us the truth. That's something to remember. But again, dispensationalism is opposite to scripture. Scripture teaches, and so does documents like the Didac and some of these early things we looked at. It teaches a great apostasy at the end. It teaches that the love of many will grow cold. The apostles all believed in tribulation and persecution. That was like, rejoice when you have that. Your reward is great in heaven. Dispensationalism teaches the opposite. It teaches that there's going to be a revival, at least in Israel, and people who are left after the tribulation, teaches that you don't have to endure persecution. It's opposite to the Bible. So we have to reject it. We have to at least ask questions as to, hmm, do I really believe in this? Or why do I believe in this? Now, a challenge with this is, what about Daniel? What about Daniel and the lions being saved from the lions? What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being saved from, you know, being thrown in the fire when they didn't want to worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue? 
Aren't those types for the rapture? Well, no, they're not. And, and the answer is pretty simple. Daniel was saved from the lions, but he wasn't saved from being a prisoner to Babylon. He wasn't saved from being treated like a prisoner. He wasn't saved from you know, being captured. He wasn't saved from persecution or, or tribulation and from suffering, from being ripped away from his homeland. Shadrach and his friends were saved from the fire. But fire is a picture of God's judgment. Remember, God is a consuming fire. All the pictures having to do with the final judgment are all about fire. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being saved from the fire is a type, is a type, is a physical thing that showed a spiritual reality, which is we are not condemned, we are not destined for wrath. That's true. We're not destined for wrath. We will not be thrown in the lake of fire as believers. But were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saved from being treated like prisoners, from being pushed around, from whatever, right? Yeah, they were prisoners. They were made to worship an idol, which is, again, a mark of the beast type. All that, that whole episode with them is an image of the future of believers. And when they were thrown in the fire, they were saved. Now, fire can also mean death in that sense. So they were, you know, it's talking about believers who are going to be martyred for refusing to worship the beast. But who saves them? Jesus saves them. You will conquer and you'll be given the crown of life, even if you get martyred. So that's the point. That's the, that's the lesson, not you're going to be saved from tribulation. So it's very important to read these things careful. We are saved from wrath, not from tribulation. These examples support a pre-wrath rapture or a gathering together rather than a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, another challenge is from Revelation 3 verse 10. So let's take a look at this. This is, again, one of the churches, the Church of Philadelphia. This is the sixth church. And he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So this this seems like God is keeping them from tribulation. But we have to carefully study this. The Greek word for keep, if we look it up, Actually, let me find this here. Um, is tero, tereo. I'm not pronouncing it right, probably. But it doesn't mean like keep as in rescue you from tribulation. It means to be guarded from loss. Okay? It means to be preserved. Let's put it that way. It's a, it's a better way of saying it. So it means to be guarded from loss. And it means in the correct understanding of this in context is to be kept from being corrupted by the devil, being corrupted by the, the the deception and the illusion that's coming up on the world in the final days. And it's true. If you read this in context of other verses and the context of history, it's true. Look at John 17, verses 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So what is keep? The same word here is used. Same meaning in the sense that keeping them teaches perseverance of the saints. That's a teaching under the umbrella of election. People who God has chosen to save, he will keep saved. Again, that's a controversial thing. If you don't agree with that, then I don't know what to tell you. I mean, scripture does teach that, and there's a whole series I've written on that. But keep means to preserve the saints. Your faith in Jesus, if it's genuine, if you've had a genuine coming to Christ, 
genuinely born again, Jesus will keep you just like he says multiple times. And so that's number one. God protected people throughout history and kept them saved. God protected the Israelites during the plagues. Now, of course, a lot of the Israelites were apostate, but again, these are physical things that are types and shadows for the ultimate reality in Christ. And Christ says multiple times that he keeps those who the Father has given to him. There's there's an understanding of perseverance of the saints in that, that he will keep you. Your faith is not your own. It's a gift from God, just like Ephesians 2 says. It's a gift from God. God gives you the ability to believe, and therefore God keeps you saved. Again, it's contradictory, controversy, contra, gosh, controversial thing. It's not contradictory because the Bible teaches election and it teaches predestination. But God, you have to trust in God's ability to keep you, and that's what these things are teaching. Now, another thing that's important is this is addressed to the sixth church in Revelation. The sixth church is the one that was before our church. It was kind of the revival church around in the 18th and 19th century. The revival church of Bible studies, of Bible societies, you know, reprinting the Bible, of missionary work. That was that church, brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. And so this church was kept from the final age. Of course it was. Yeah, they were kept from the final deception. We're in the lukewarm church now. This statement doesn't apply to our church. So using this statement as a way to to somehow support the pre-trib rapture, it's really taking out of context, and it's not understanding the meaning of what it means to keep. And again, trial and tribulation are two different words. The, the word trial that's used in Revelation 3.10 it doesn't refer to necessarily the tribulation. It may refer to other things too, which is the trial that's coming upon the world, the testing of the world through all the deception that's going to happen in the, in the final days, in the final church, the lukewarm church. But again, this is teaching perseverance of the saints. Either way you look at it, it's not teaching a pre-tribulation rapture. So all these challenge verses that we looked at, they're really not teaching anything about the pre-tribulation rapture. They're teaching, if anything, endurance and perseverance through tribulation so that you can conquer through Christ in the resurrection. So now I want to take us back to the idea of imminence. This idea is that Jesus could return at any point in time without warning. And a couple verses to support that is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 4. We'll start with there. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This is very important. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now here's the verse that nobody reads when they quote this. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Oops. What is this actually about then? Let's compare this to another verse, 2 Peter 3, verses 10. But the the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Remember that passage in Revelation that we looked at in Revelation 6 with all those astronomical signs, just like Matthew 24? This is another parallel verse. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Before we go to the next one, look at look at how important this is. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away. So wait a minute. 
the day of the Lord will come like a thief, but you're going to see some very obvious signs. It's going to see, you're going to see the heavens rolling up, the heavens will pass away, everything's going to be burned, dissolved. Like, it's not a secret event. It was going to come like a thief, but what does that mean? We're going to look into that meaning a little more. But Revelation 3, verse 3 is another thief passage. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, these verses are, are very interesting because they're they're conditional, right? So the one that we just read, he says, I will come like a thief if you do not wake up. Now compare that to the first one where it says that when the you know it's come like it's gonna it's gonna come like a thief when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. But you yourselves are not in darkness, so that they will come and take you like a thief. So put it all together. What does it mean? Well, it means that the whole coming like a thief is for unbelievers. The people who say peace and safety, why are they saying peace and safety? Because they've already taken the mark of the beast. They've already taken, you know, the the thing that allows them to buy and sell and they're nice and secure and everybody's doing great. And then sudden destruction will come upon them. Why? Because they aren't aware of the scriptures. They aren't, they aren't believers. They aren't aware of the truth. And so, yeah, it's going to overtake them like a thief. But you and I, who studied the scriptures, were not in darkness. So that day will overtake us like a thief. In Revelation 3, what does Christ say? He says, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. So you have to put it all together that this idea of coming like a thief doesn't relate to this this notion that Jesus could come any moment point in time. There are signs and things that need to be fulfilled in order for Jesus to return, right? So when you see the heavens start passing away, yeah, the return of Jesus is imminent. It's going to be very obvious. But it it's not going to come like a thief because you are a believer. You believe in Jesus. You see the, You see the scriptures. You see what they say. You are not going to be overtaken by 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 the coming of the Lord. Of course, it's going to be a surprise to everybody in some sense. You know, I don't think any of us are mentally fully prepared for the heavens to pass away. <laughs> but in either case, it'll be a moment of rejoicing once it settles in to your brain. And I'm sure the presence of God will ensure that. It'll be peaceful for us. We have hope. But for people who don't believe, it will overtake them like a thief in the night. And we'll see as we go forward that that's been the case throughout history as well. So if you jump to Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44, nobody knows the the day or the hour, but concerning that day and hour, nobody knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as as it were in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But now look look at the next verse, which is verse 43. This is such a telling verse. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the, the night the thief was coming, 
he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay, there's a lot of a lot of great things in this passage. First, first and foremost, let's let's review a point that we made very early on in the first episode, which is found in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the original language, this word know is actually to make known. Okay. It sounds a little weird in English, and that's for a reason, because it's translated not verbatim, right? It's not translated verbatim. It's just translated a little differently. So this is very important. This word means to make known. Okay, so what does that mean for Matthew 24? It means that only the Father will make it known. It's not that you can't know the day or the hour. Of course, we can't know the exact time that Jesus is coming. But you have to weigh that against all of the history of God warning people ahead of time before judgment. He warned Noah 120 years before of all the prophecies of the end times, of all the signs that Jesus said would happen. You know, he, he bothered to give us all of these signs so that we would know and not be overtaken like a thief in the night. That's the whole point, so that we could be prepared. Does that mean to try to predict his return? No, it means understand that there are things that happen, that there are signs, and what to look out for so that we understand where we are in history. This is really important. So the whole thing about nobody knows the day or the hour, the Father makes it known. What does that mean? That means that nobody can make known the day or the hour to you. Nobody can tell you, oh yeah, he's returning in this year on this date. Anybody who claims to do that, Jesus is saying disregard them because nobody has the authority to tell you other than the Father. Has the Father told you? Well, no. So yeah, probably he's not going to share that with us because it's a surprise. The Son knows. Of course the Son knows. He's one with the Father. The, the God is one triune being of completely one mind and one accord. So, of course, the Son knows when he's returning. But the Son doesn't have authority to make it known. That's what this whole statement is about. So he's warning you against people doing time setting and predicting Christ's return. That's what this whole thing is about. That doesn't mean that you can't watch for the signs of the time. So you have to balance these two ideas A lot of people always go one way or the other. Oh, you can't know, so it's super imminent, so it could be tomorrow. Well, not true. Then you're spending time trying to figure out, is it going to be today? Is it going to be today? Is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be this? And then you have the other people who set times and try to predict in the future and stuff, and that's not good either. Just take it one day at a time, but learn to read the writing on the wall as well. Learn to study history to see where you are in history. This is so important. Now, there's a lot of other important things in this passage. So again, it's not teaching imminence. It's just teaching to watch out for people who are date setting. But there's a lot of other interesting things in this passage and the whole thing with dates of Noah. Well, again, this is hearkening back to the things that we just talked about, which is when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them, just like in the days of Noah. What were the people in the days of Noah doing? They were eating and drinking and giving a marriage when the judgment happened. Now, let me ask you this. In Revelation, people who take the mark of the beast, what are they going to be doing? They're going to be eating, drinking, 
and giving in marriage. They're going to be living their life like the, the best life, YOLO, you know, you live only once, do you, as if nothing is going to happen. And they're going to say, peace and safety. Life is good. And then sudden destruction will come upon them. The people who are not taking the mark of the beast, they're not going to be able to buy and sell. They're not going to be able to be eating and drinking and giving in marriage. Okay, they're not going to say peace and safety. They're going to recognize the signs of the times. So all this thing about the days of Noah, it's about it's a it's an indicator of timing, right? And what does that mean? Not to say that we predict when Jesus is returning, but it's another sign that teaches us that you're going to be here on earth. People will be taking the mark of the beast. Some people will not and suffering. And that's when the end will come. That's when Jesus is going to return. When people have already taken the mark of the beast. And there are believers that are getting persecuted. They're not believers that got left behind. They're everybody who's on the planet or plane, I should say, because I don't believe in a planet, but that's a whole different topic. Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44, the whole thing about the thief. I want to read this again because it's so good. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know what on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. Again, there's that whole thing. Unless, remember back in Revelation, he's going to come like a thief if you don't wake up. So what is the point here? Wake up and be alert and read this, the writing on the wall. But this is, I love this verse 43. We got to read this again. But th- but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. This is such a profound statement. And if you catch it, it's just really, I mean, it's, it is trademark wisdom from Jesus. The way he, he uses words and he paints pictures, it's just profound. There's a parallel to the strong man, the parable of the strong man in this statement. The strong man being bound by somebody stronger, obviously, who is Jesus. And the strong man is Satan. The strong man was the one who was the God of this world, the one who ruled this world. And Jesus came and bound him up. That's something we'll look at in the future. But the strong man, the parable of the strong man is about how Jesus came and bound Satan. And in other parts in scripture, Jesus compares Satan to a thief, the thief that comes and destroys and kills, whereas he's the good shepherd that gives life. But in this statement, it's very interesting because he echoes what he says in Revelation, that if you're not awake, he's going to come like a thief, meaning surprise factor. And and this is this is the, the brilliance of the statement. The, who's the master of the house and who's the thief? Well, in this case, the master of the house that got his house broken into was Satan. This was Satan's kingdom. And Satan didn't know when the Messiah was coming. He had no clue. That's why he was trying to war against the Messiah throughout history with the fallen angels trying to corrupt the bloodline of man with you know, these different empires like Persia and Greece and Rome. I mean, it was Satan's world. And he, he tried to kill Jesus when he, uh, through Herod, when he was born. So there's constant effort at trying to stop the Messiah. He didn't know what was going to happen. So what's the point? The thief, in this case, Jesus came like a thief into Satan's kingdom and robbed him, which is just so brilliant. And he robbed him of what? He robbed him of the souls that Satan had stolen from God in the first place. He, he took everything back. He redeemed us. And he came like a thief because, 
nobody knew when he was coming. Now, certain people had an idea, the Magi, right? There was a lot of prophecy about Jesus' arrival. But again, it was not something that most people were aware of and certainly could predict down to the day. So ultimately, this is an interesting statement about a thief and being awake and playing with different imagery. But the point is that coming like a thief is related to being awake or not, being a believer or not. That's really the point. If you look at a parallel verse in Luke 17, um, verses 26 through 30, let me pull this up really quick. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, here we go, another comparison. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling and planting and building. But on that day, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What do these two events have in common? They have in common people who are believers and people who are non-believers. People who are believers were prepared and they escaped wrath. Doesn't mean that they had an easy time up until that point, but they escaped God's wrath. People who are not believers, who had taken the mark, I mean, that's that wasn't happening at the time, but they were friends with the world and that's what it's about. They're friends with the world. They were eating and drinking and building and doing all the things that you do with the comforts of the world when you have access. And then sudden destruction came upon them as a thief in the night. So the whole thief in the night thing is for unbelievers. Signs were given in advance to every generation so that you would know where you are in history, number one, that you could endure, number two, and so you'd have hope. And that's really important because we're living in the final chapter of the story. But God warned Noah 120 years in advance. He warned Lot. He warned everybody before judgment. The people who were remnant heeded his warning and they and escaped his wrath. Did they have an easy time up until that point? No, but they escaped God's wrath and that was the point. And God's warned us too. So the whole point, I mean, even in Matthew 24, verse 25, he says, see, I have warned you, I've told you beforehand. What's the point of that? I'm telling you beforehand so you know the things that will come to pass, that I'm in control, that you have hope. That's the whole point. It's encouragement to endure because you will conquer. I don't know when Jesus will return. I don't believe that we are at an imminent phase of his return. I don't believe that because there are many things that have to be fulfilled. We'll get into that in future episodes. But at the same time, I do believe we're in the 11th hour and that a lot of things point to that. So, Make up your own mind where we're at in the point of history, but hopefully in the following episodes as we continue into this whole series, you're going to see a better idea of how close we are. Again, I don't know when Jesus will return. I'm not making any predictions. But at the same time, we are in the 11th hour. Now let's look at Jesus' return as one event. There's nothing in Scripture about the event being a secret rapture, but rather one obvious big event where everything happens and everything's completed. So let's start with 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17. This is the coming of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who do have hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, very obvious, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So what's happening at the second coming? Well, you have big sounds. You have, you know, the the, the dead rising from their graves, and we're all going to be caught up eventually. Let's look at the next one. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10. The judgment at Christ's coming. That title alone should tell you what's happening. Christ's coming is the judgment. Verses 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. A couple things to keep in mind here. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, this eternal is not be living in hell for eternity. It's being destroyed, but that's another study. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So much in this verse, really so so much. So what are some of the things that are happening when Jesus returns? Well, he's giving vengeance to the unbelievers. He's, they're going to suffer punishment. He's giving relief to the believers. He's going to be revealed and be marveled at. So it's going to be very impressive, the most impressive thing in history. And it's going to be very obvious. There's going to be angels. That's another thing to keep in mind. Flaming fire. Now compare this to Matthew 24, verse 30 to 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels... There it is again. With a loud trumpet call, there's the trumpet again, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one of heaven to the other. So there's trumpets, there's angels, there's obvious signs when Jesus returns. It's not going to be something you'll miss. It's not a secret event. Let's continue to two, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So when Jesus appears, is it going to be secret? No, because when he appears, he's going to bring to nothing the Antichrist, the Antichrist system, the wicked. So it's going to be very obvious. It's going to be a consuming light. Matthew 24, verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines far from the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Very obvious. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. So at the coming of the Lord Jesus, he's coming with all of his saints. Now, this is used by some people who believe in pre-tribulation that 
Jesus is returning after the, snatching everybody up and returning with the saints. But that's not really what this is talking about. Okay, first off, it's not saying, it's saying with the saints. It's not saying for the saints. Okay, so this is relating to 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where we're being caught up. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. All of this is happening at once. Jesus arrives right before God's wrath is poured out. We're brought up in the air with the people who are resurrected. And then there's a victory march down to Jerusalem. Battle of Armageddon is done. And New Jerusalem, the judgment happens. Everything happens all at once. So it's not teaching an immortal soul. This this last verse we looked at, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, coming with his saints. Because first off, saints throughout the Bible is referring to living believers. It's not living, it's not talking about people who made it to heaven or have been canonized as saints. That's a, that's a, an invention by the Catholics. So it's not teaching that. It's not teaching an immortal soul. That's a whole other study. The Hebrews who wrote the Bible do not believe in an immortal soul. They believe in a contingent soul. Of course, we have souls, but they're contingent, contingent about life. And that's why resurrection was the main hope. It wasn't going to heaven. And so this idea of being raptured and taken to heaven is, is also not founded in Scripture because the Hebrews never believed in such things. But it's talking about the moment when Christ has caught people up and he's coming back down to the earth. You're not staying in heaven. You're coming back down the earth with him. Remember the parable of the five virgins. Now, there's there's some tradition in there about a wedding ceremony and how people would escort the groom to the bride. Well, that's what's happening. We're being caught up. We're the victory party. We're escorting the groom back down to the bride, which is the church, which will be the new kingdom in eternity. So all of that is happening all at once. Now, another thing I want to point your attention to is the judgment and reward are happening both at the second coming. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? I mean, that's pretty visual language of the judgment. Judgment and second coming are at the same time. Matthew 16, verses 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What does that mean? That happens when Jesus comes. So every mention of Jesus' arrival is about it being obvious and attached to consequences whether good or bad. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34, the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, there it is again, the angels, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. This is the not the throne of the kingdom, by the way. Got to mention that. This is the throne of judgment. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There it is again, two types of people. Believers and unbelievers, not believers who were left behind and believers who were raptured, Jews, non-Jews. That's nonsense. It has always been people who believe and people who don't. 
And the goats were predestined to be goats. So there's that. Verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right, put the goats on his left. And so the, the judgment and the reward and the dividing all happens at the end when Jesus comes back. Matthew 25, verse 46, and these will go away into eternal destruction. So all the, the sheep and the goats, the goats will go into eternal destruction, but the righteous into eternal life. And there's a lot of verses like this where it's talking about the wicked is going to be destroyed and the righteous will be going to eternal life. All at the judgment, all happening at the same time. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22, talks about the end. We'll look at this for a second. For as in Adam all die, this is verse 22, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is very important. Why is it important? Because the last enemy to be destroyed is death through the resurrection. But wait a minute, what happens when Jesus comes back? Everybody's resurrected. So if the last enemy is to be destroyed, think about this carefully now. If the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and that's happening when Jesus returns with the sound of the trumpet, with his angels, with all those astronomical signs, then that means that he's delivering the kingdom back to God the Father. That means he was already ruling that means the millennial kingdom in the future as a physical thing is a false teaching. And we're going to explore that in much more depth in the future. But this is one of the best verses to anchor that belief in, that the kingdom is already happening. He's, the, he's ruling spiritually while his enemies are amidst him. And when he comes back in his glory, the final enemy to be defeated is death to the resurrection. He gives the kingdom to God the Father so that God may be all in all and Jesus rules the earth. The, the triune God rules the earth and is present with man. Hallelujah. That's pretty awesome. But all these things point to the fact that the second coming is obvious and it's everything's happening all at once. Judgment, resurrection, reward, punishment. It's all one thing. Another thing to keep in mind is this. The angels are doing the rapturing or I should say the gathering of the elect, not Jesus. The pre-tribulation rapture teaches that Jesus is the one that's doing the, the secret rapture. But that's not true. Look at verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from it. We've read this verse a few times now. From heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Okay, so we know that. Now compare this to Matthew 24, verse 30, verse 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one heaven of, the, of one end of heaven to the other. Is it the same trumpet we're talking about? Of course we are. We're not talking about two trumpet events. One event, one trumpet. In Thessalonians, Paul doesn't mention the angels. He mentions them in other places. But in Matthew, Jesus mentions that he will come with the angels and he's going to send the angels to get everybody. 
and bring us up. However, that's going to work. Who knows? But it's the angels that's doing the work. Look at another parallel verse, Mark 13, verses uh, 26 to 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Is it Jesus that's doing the rapturing, or are the messengers, the angels, doing the gathering? It's the angels. Look at two kings. This is an Old Testament passage, and this, you know, there's a lot of debate on this, but this is another study. Elijah being taken up. Two kings, chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. And as they still went on and talked, behold, char- behold chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by the world into heaven. So, did Elijah get raptured into heaven? No, that's a whole separate study. And there's proof of that because he wrote a letter several years after this event. And I'm not going to get into that in this study, but I will in a future study on the afterlife and on heaven and the stuff that has infiltrated Christianity through pagan Greek ideas. But look, Elijah got taken up as into the air, into heaven, is into the sky, and put somewhere else to be saved from some of the persecution that he was dealing with or having, or being put somewhere else to do other work. And there's proof of that. But the point is that, was it Jesus that took him up in heaven? No, it was angels and chariots. That's the point with that verse. So going back to the New Testament, Luke 16, verses 22 through 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This is the parable of Lazarus. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off in Lazarus's side. So now this is another one of those things where people say, see, this is proof of heaven and it's a parable. That's number one. I'm just going to leave it at that. It's a parable that plays on common understandings of the time, but it's a parable. It doesn't prove that there's a heaven in the sense that we go to some spiritual realm with our immortal soul. But it's a, it's a parable. And besides that, the point is this. Who is he carried by? He was carried by the angels. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So again, we see angels doing the work. Matthew, oh, uh, actually Matthew, yeah, 13 verses 36 through 42. Parable of the wheat and tares. A parable of the weeds. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Verses 39. The reapers are the angels. They're the harvesters. They're the ones who get the believers at the end of the age. The angels. Who did who warned Lot before Sodom and Gomorrah was judged? Two angels. So, what is the conclusion of all these verses? And there's more like these, but I think this is enough to prove the point that anytime Scripture mentions these types of things about like a gathering together or saving of the elect in some way, the angels are doing the work. God is sending the angels out to do the work. The second coming is also very obvious. Jesus is coming with loud sounds, huge astral signs. And he's coming with a legion of angels. And the angels will be sent to gather everybody who is alive, left alive, into the air. That's what's happening. But that's happening 
at the same time as the judgment of the world is, after we get caught up in the air, there's going to be God's wrath poured out. And the end is there. The judgment is happening. The resurrection is happening. It's all happening all at the same time. There's no secret rapture. So wrapping this, wrapping this up, but look, problems with the pre-trib rapture are as follows. It splits the coming and the manifestation into two events. So now you have three total things, especially if you believe in a millennial kingdom, which you have to if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. So you have Jesus coming secretly, then he comes again, then there's like a, th- a third thing where there's a second resurrection. You have three events when really the Bible just says there's one. It also creates two classes of saints, right? Again, those people who are saved and then those who people who are going to be left behind but will be saved and get treated differently. That doesn't make sense. It's not consistent with history. It's not consistent with scripture whatsoever. God would be unfair if that was the case. And God has one elect people that he's chosen, and all of them have to be conformed to the image of Christ. Christ suffered, so all of us have to suffer to some degree. That's unavoidable. Every church in history has experienced that to some degree, some more than others, obviously. There's no secret coming ever mentioned in the scriptures. It's all inferred using, quite honestly, poor scripture and poor exegesis. I hope that you've seen that by now, but the pre-trib rapture teaches the opposite of what the Bible says. It teaches you to have hope in being escaped when the Bible teaches you to have hope in being resurrected and to endure. It teaches you that Jesus is going to come secretly when the Bible teaches you that he's coming openly and and very obviously, right? It teaches that there's different classes of believers. People are going to get left behind. It doesn't prepare you for tribulation. It's looking at physical signs instead of spiritual realities. People are looking at the third temple. Oh my gosh, it's almost done. That means we're going to, the Antichrist is almost here. We're going to be raptured away. Like instead of looking at some bigger spiritual realities that are happening behind the scenes of those physical carrots that they're dangling in front of you to distract you. So it's helping you to be an escapist instead of be finding joy in tribulation. And that's hard to do, obviously, but we have to take up our cross. That's what the Bible teaches. So takeaways are that the pre-tribulation rapture, hopefully you have seen, is not biblical. It's a deception. I'm sorry to say it. Again, it doesn't make you any less of a human being by believing in it because there's a good reason to believe in it. If it you know, everybody wants to be saved from persecution. I, just, I would like to as well, but the reality of the Christian life is that we will be persecuted. And that's something that we are saved from in the long run. We are conquerors through Christ. And you have to remember that that's our hope. Christ is our hope. His promise will endure. We will be resurrected. We will be conquerors through Christ, no matter what happens. But you have to strengthen yourself. You have to endure. You have to be prepared for the worst. It doesn't prepare you for suffering to believe that you're going to be whisked away to safety secretly. It just doesn't. And there's going to be a lot of deception in this age. And there already is. There's going to be a lot more And like I said in the very beginning of this episode, who knows what they're going to do, what's going to happen, but don't be deceived. People who are putting all of their attention on these physical things and not reading what the Bible says, they're going to set themselves up for massive 
disappointment. And I wouldn't be surprised that the great falling away that's prophesied in many places is going to be influenced by a great disappointment. A great disappointment that there's no rapture. And a lot of the people who came to the rapture because it attracts people who want to escape, just like the parable of the sower says, the seeds that fell on the dry ground, as soon as tribulation came, they they lost their faith. Those are the types of people that this theory attracts. I'm not saying that's you. I'm just saying that this is a comfortable theory. It does. It's not alignment with the truth. And so the people who come to this and who come to Jesus thinking that he's just going to save them from tribulation, what are they going to do when they experience tribulation? The parable of the sower tells us. And so we have to be careful. So when Jesus returns, that's it. Everything happens all at once. Remember all these verses next time somebody tells you that there's a secret rapture. So when is the rapture? I don't know. I don't call it the rapture if there's a gathering. I think rapture refers to this whole idea of a secret rapture. And really, it's it's just a gathering of the elect. The elect will be gathered right at the time of the second coming. When is the second coming? We don't know the day or the hour, but we certainly can read the signs. We're in the 11th hour. Certain things need to be fulfilled. There needs to be a mark of the beast. And again, we'll be talking about this in, in this series. The mark is not some physical thing. It's going to be a test of worship and who you obey, just like there has been in throughout history right? From the very beginning. So ultimately, the mark of the beast isn't here yet. It's not a chip. It's not a jib-jab. It's a spiritual reality. And that hasn't happened yet. The Antichrist power is not on the earth yet. People are not being persecuted. I mean, they are in some parts of the world, but it's not a worldwide thing. The worldwide worship of the beast is not yet there. And remember that once that takes place, and people start to say peace and safety, they're intermarrying and they're enjoying life, then it's pretty imminent, I believe, because those are the last few moments. We're in the 11th hour. Once the mark of the beast hits and people are being enforced against for worship, that's when you know that Jesus' return is imminent. And that's on the horizon. I do believe that within our generation that's on the horizon, it's a very big possibility. Again, I'm not time-setting, but I think it's very reasonable based on everything that I've studied. So until then, it doesn't matter. We'll get into more of this in future episodes, and we'll unpack these things one by one so we can narrow down and really be, not narrow down a date for Jesus' return, but really narrow down what we believe on each of these things because we opened up a lot of stuff in this episode, and it's all connected. So again, Try to watch all these in sequence if you can. If you haven't, go back. But until then, look, pray, strengthen yourselves, cling to the word, cling to Jesus. Uh, you know, use your gifts daily. God gave you some gifts to use. He's kept you alive. If, you've, if you're listening to this, if you're reading this, if you're watching this, you have been kept alive for another day. And that's on purpose so that you can enjoy God. You can use his gifts. And remember Paul's words. It doesn't matter whether we live or die, everything we do for the Lord. It doesn't matter whether we live or die. If we die, we know that we're conquerors in Christ and we will be resurrected because he's faithful. If we do not die, then we have been given life right now so that we can use our gifts, spread the gospel, help other people, and you know, bring more people to Christ until that fateful day. So, Hope this has helped you. I hope if it's disappointing that you believed in pre-trib rapture and now you don't, 
I'm sorry to disappoint you, but look, ultimately we have a great hope in the resurrection and we have a great hope in the return of Christ, which I believe is on the horizon. And there are many other things we'll talk about, like the Mark of the Beast. But stay strong and remember that no matter what, we do everything for the Lord. Until then, Maranatha and God bless. <laughs>